This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Friends. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. We took a break for a few weeks, but before that, we were reading from this text called Notes on What to Be Aware of in Zazen. And last time, uh, we heard this, this admonition. It said, do nothing at all. Don't fabricate any things with the six senses. And then it picks up from there and asks, who is this? Its name is unknown. It cannot be called body. It cannot be called mind. Trying to think of it, the thought vanishes. Trying to speak of it, words die. It is like a fool, an idiot. It is as high as a mountain, deep as the ocean. Without peak or depths, its brilliance is unthinkable. It shows itself silently. Between sky and earth, only this whole body is seen. Who is this, first of all, is a great way to start anything. It cannot be called body. It cannot be called mind. I think it's, it's a common refrain in the Buddhist world that the fundamental delusion is I. Right? That that's where everything begins, is this idea that there's a me. And that this me is separate from you. That's usually how we talk about it. That I think I'm here and that you think you're there. And that is delusional, according to Buddhist teachings. But if we look closely at that delusion, we see that there's something even more fundamental. (laughs) It's not just that I think I'm me and that I'm distinct, it's that I think I am somehow separate from the rest of me. Where do you locate I? Now, if a bee stings you, maybe, you know, for a moment, you have this moment of clarity and you recognize that wherever it is, maybe you... Maybe I is the back of your hand, or maybe I is, is your knee. But if we're just walking down the street, I is just this pink wrinkled mass, and we're carrying it around in our head, and it has these little windows that look out onto the world, and it drives this vehicle that has all these tools. That's I. So that if we're really honest with ourselves, we imagine that, well, if there was an accident and I lost my hand, you know, that would be sad, but I would still be me. If I lost my arm, I would still be me. If I had a heart transplant, I would still be me. But if my brain was damaged, 
maybe I wouldn't be me anymore. We have a very limited idea of where we are located, of what it is that is this identity. So Kazan says, it's not body, and it's not mind. Trying to think of it, the thought vanishes. He's describing the idea that a thing can't do its own function to itself. Right. If I am something bigger than my brain, then this same I can't turn and look inward. Right. The whole organism has to do it. It's like doing a flip. <laughs> Trying to speak of it, words die. I can try to speak about myself. And in doing so, I assert that the speaker is not the same as what's being spoken of. There's a gap. He's saying there is no gap. You can't step outside. You can't take that step outside of who you are. He's inviting us instead to really occupy that space, whatever that is. And then he's going to say that that space is immeasurably huge. He says, it is like a fool, an idiot. This, this idea of the fool comes up a lot, or at least it comes up enough in Zen literature. And often it's used to, uh, as a pairing against the scholar or the academic. Right? And the, the idea is that the, the scholar is dissecting Buddhism, whereas the fool might be actually practicing Buddhism even if he or she doesn't really get all the ins and the outs of it. That's one way to look at this. But the other way that the fool is used, or the idiot is used, is to describe someone or, or, or some functioning that isn't self-reflective. Right? The intelligent person sits on a hilltop and contem- contemplates her own existence. Right? This is navel-gazing. Right, we look at our belly buttons and we say, who am I? What is this? What is this all about? And the fool in this telling isn't doing that. The fool isn't trying to draw lines between inside and outside. The fool isn't trying to dissect the self. The fool is just moving about freely with un- unhindered unburdened by these questions that seem so important. It is as high as a mountain, deep as the ocean. But then immediately, he says, without peak or depths. So it's as high as that and it's as deep as that, but it doesn't have height and it doesn't have a depth. Its brilliance is unthinkable. 
It shows itself silently. Between sky and earth, only this whole body is seen. If you were here earlier in the year, maybe into last year, we talked quite a bit about this text called Busho, which means Buddha essence. And in that text, Dogen, the predecessor to Kazan, does all sorts of verbal acrobatics to talk about something that is everything. He says, it's this and this and this, and then he says, it's not this and it's not this and it's not this. And what he's pointing to when he speaks of Buddha essence is something that is synonymous with reality, not separate from it. It's not a flavor. It's not a layer. It goes all the way through to the center and all the way out. Here, Kazan is using different language now instead of talking about Buddha essence, which feels very abstract. He's talking about your mind and your body, and he's saying, this is that. Your mind, he's saying, is without borders. Your body is without borders. Don't imagine yourself to be small. Don't imagine yourself to be distinct. Don't imagine yourself to be separate. It's really hard poetry. (laughs) Because you're being asked to see something that he's actually saying flat out can't be seen. Because the the eye can't look at itself. (laughs) We try. This one is without compare. He has completely died. Eyes clear. She stands nowhere. She has no location. Where is there any dust? What can obstruct such a one? Dust is used a lot because there can only be dust on something. Something can only be impure if it's separate from something else. But if something is the ground of everything, then there's nothing that can make it dirty. And there's nothing that can make it clean. It's like walking on a path and saying, oh, this path is filthy. Yeah, but it's filthy all the way down. (laughs) That's all you've got. You can just as easily say that it's pristine. Because dirt has no other way. (laughs) Clear water has no back or front. Space has no inside or outside. These are so obvious. But for me, every time I read them, I have to stop and think about them. Completely clear. Its own luminosity shines before form and emptiness were fabricated. Objects of mind and mind itself have no place 
to exist. He's describing something that has no reference point. We can't locate it as north, south, east, or west. We can't say it looks like this from the front or it looks like this from the back. We have such an interesting notion of time because we, you know, people like to, uh, we say things like, since time began. I don't know. I'm not a physicist, but that makes no sense to me. Certain things have beginnings and certain things have endings. It's not clear to me that time has a start. It's not clear to me that time has an end. We try so desperately, in in fact, it's one of our main functions of our minds to try to parse time and to imagine that time is relative to a starting point and to an ending point. But if you were, if you were immortal, if you knew that you were never, 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 never going to die, your understanding of time would be completely different. We have an experience as we get older that time seems to go faster often. And the way that that was first explained to me is, is just very simple math. You know, that when you're five, a year of your life is 20% of your life. It feels like it takes a long time to go through a year. Right? When you're 90, a year of your life is getting close to, to 1%. And so even though it's the same year, you look up and it just went. But that happens in part because you're, you're also thinking, you know, I'm close. I'm 90. I only have, I'm, I'm filling this glass of water and I'm almost at the top. But if you knew that it would never be full, if you knew that it would never, ever, ever end, there would be no time going quickly and there would be no time going slowly. You could experience it however you wanted. There would be no reference point. There would be no horizon line. You could just experience this moment as something full and long, and then you could blink, and it would be as if a month had passed. Because there would be no fixed points anymore. You would just always be now. He's describing something like that. He's inviting us to imagine ourselves as having no fixed reference points. No birth, no death. No location. Really, really hard. And as I said a few weeks ago, there are traditions that that really explore this. Zen, not so much in, a, in the specific way of trying to reset your reference point, but there are practices within Buddhism in which you actually try to move your consciousness to your belly button, for example. 
and out of your brain or to your kneecap. It's a fun game. Like I said, don't do it while you're driving. And in this, he is also attacking the idea of absolute and relative, which we talk about often in Buddhism. We say that there's absolute truth and there's relative truth. We say there's form and there's emptiness. In the Heart Sutra, which we chant most nights, we talk about form is emptiness and emptiness is form. That's actually not an acknowledgement of the two. <laughs> right? It's an argument against them. There's one truth. And that truth is essentially invisible as truth because you can't step outside of it. When we say that there's absolute truth and relative truth, that's a game that we play so that we can step out. <laughs> and we can say, well, if I stand over here, then truth looks like this. And if I stand over here, then truth looks like this. But again, that's not truth. That's just a narrative. We do this with everything. <laughs> we cut apart everything. <laughs> so that we can dissect it, so that we can look at it, so that we can say, I get what this part is. I get what this part is. But it's like, this is, I'm sure I can come up with a better analogy than this, but it's like trying to understand a cookie by understanding flour. And then by really understanding sugar. And then by really understanding an egg. Right? That if you really fully grasp these things, you'll get what a cookie is. We know that's not true. They can't be separate. It doesn't work that way. No matter how much you know about each of the three, if you never eat a cookie, you'll never get what it is. This has always already been so, but it is still without a name. Again, because it can't name itself. The great teacher, the third ancestor, Senkan, temporarily called it mind. And the venerable Nagarjuna once called it body. <laughs> He's saying, yes, sometimes we talk about this thing as mind. And maybe sometimes we talk about this thing as body. But those are, that's provisional language. Enlightened essence and form, giving rise to the bodies of all the Buddhas, it has no more and no less about it. It cannot be measured in degree. What I love about this, and we'll come back to this, is that I think we come into Zazen with the idea that by sitting in Zazen, we're going to somehow uh, penetrate delusion, right? That I'm going to take up this practice, and that will move me beyond delusion. And what he's saying, this is, these are his Zazen instructions. He hasn't said a single thing about what to do in Zazen. The first thing he's saying is, first, transcend delusion, <laughs> 
And this is a theme that comes up over and over again, that Zazen, in our deepest understanding of what Zazen is, is not something separate. It's not a place where we work something out. It's fundamentally complete. And something that's fundamentally complete within this definition it's not even good enough to say that it's vast. Vast still implies a container. It's without limit. So, so when he teaches Zazen, he says, start there. It's a big idea. Start there. Sit down on a cushion. And completely let go of your idea of me. And that. And big. And small. And forward and backward and front and back and up and down. Sit here at the center, not the center of something that has limits, but the center being the whole thing. There are other teachers who speak to the idea that, you know, one inch Buddha is one inch Zazen, which is to say that, that Buddha is always Buddha. There's no size. Right? There's no small Buddha. There is no big Buddha. There is no small Zazen. There is no big Zazen. There is no one minute or 30 minutes. Not really. You know, If you think that doing 45 minutes of Zazen is success, but doing five minutes of Zazen is failure, then you're misunderstanding what Zazen is. In the same way that if we imagine that a long life is a successful one and a short one is a failure, we're misunderstanding what life is. A thing can only be what it is. It can only ever be complete. And we only call it incomplete when we apply a measurement from the outside. I love that this is the starting point. Saying, throw out everything. Then I'll talk to you about your posture. (laughs) I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.